Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Emerging Cricket Podcast, a crossover episode with Jared Kimber and his show Red Inca. Jared is joined by our very own Tim Cutler to discuss issues surrounding T20 and other franchise leagues around the world. Tim draws on his experiences from his time in Hong Kong and highlights issues stifling other leagues both in full member and associate countries. Tim is just one guest in a whole catalogue of great shows by Jared, so make sure to subscribe to The Red Inca and make sure you're subscribed to us here at Emerging Cricket if you are not subscribed already. This Friday, we sit down with Anchi Rath a year after his decision to pursue a career in the Indian system. But for now, enjoy The Red Inca with Jared Kimber and Tim Cutler. This episode is a crossover episode. Because of the topic and the guests, this episode will be run right here on Redinka, the podcast of me, Jared Kimber, and also on Emerging Cricket's podcast. So if you've never heard of one of these podcasts and you're hearing about it for the first time now, go subscribe to make our Venn diagram into a circle. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about the problems of how T20 cricket is run. And so I got on someone who has run a T20 competition. I'm Tim Cutler. During the day, I'm an insurance broker, but uh, every other hour of the night, I'm the founder of Emerging Cricket. Through the Hong Kong Blitz and his time working in cricket and now as founder of Emerging Cricket, Cutler has a great knowledge of the global game. In this, we look at how T20 cricket is run, why no one is in charge, how it is possible that players aren't being paid, and what you have to do to get a league sanction. I've got you on, Cutler, because... On top of being an insurance broker and now running a website for associate crickets and development crickets and cricket that a lot of uh, really angry cricket fans don't care about quite often, you also happen to, in a previous life, you were the Hong Kong cricket chairman, no, Cricket Hong Kong CEO. Is that what you were? You were something. Yes. First CEO of the, the Hong Kong Cricket Association. And through that time, we, we rebranded Cricket Hong Kong. But yeah, I was the first one there at the top of the pile. Beautiful. And also during that time, started the Hong Kong Blitz, which was... I would say one of the more successful small T20 tournaments in that it seems like from the outside people got paid. Although I do remember once Dean Jones complaining that he had to travel there in economy and Michael Clark had a business class ticket. But we can get to that another day, how you ripped off poor Dean Jones in that way. But the Hong Kong Blitz, for all intents and purposes, got more attention on Hong Kong. You guys had a, an event cricket culture in Hong Kong at that point. And I think that it was a successful T20 tournament, which there are not many of. True. Got to remember when this was as well. This was 2016. And at that stage, no other associate had really gone anywhere with franchise T20 leagues. Afghanistan was still an associate at the time. They had their Shepagiza league and had occasional overseas players come, but nobody had really done it to the scale of what we planned to do. And we almost did it by accident. It was an evolution of our non-club aligned Premier League and thinking this will be a great opportunity to give our players better experience and it really snowballed. When we put it out there, well, I'm sure we'll get into the details though, we put it out there to the public to buy franchises and all of a sudden we had these great franchise owners and, and Michael Clark got on the phone to want to come and play and then all of a sudden we had a tournament in the global spotlight. Were you involved in the Shipper Gaza League as well? No, not at all. You have had chats with other leagues though. You've never actually been involved with another one though. Not officially, no, not in a, in a paid yeah. point of view, but um, post-Blitz, uh, quite a number of nations got in touch and you mentioned Hong Kong's 
cricket event psyche and that came from the Hong Kong Sixers that mm. started way back in sort of mid-century and came through. But, yeah, it was really only that first time, I think, with other countries seeing what we'd done with the Blitz that uh, there were definitely a lot of phone calls about people asking how we'd done it and, and the model of which we'd based it on. And you had proper big players. I mean, we've already mentioned Michael Clark, although in T20 land, maybe not so much a big player, but you did actually have a lot of good players. How did you sort of bring it all together? Where was How was it financed? We started really, really small, and I think that's probably where a lot of tournaments go wrong these days, and especially since the pie hasn't necessarily got bigger, but a lot of people are looking for the dollars from TV to come in to just kind of bolster these leagues. I think when we started with a really low budget, we sold the franchises at about Try to remember how much it was. It was that long ago? About ten thousand US dollars. I remember this because I almost talked to someone. We were thinking of buying one and trying a money ball. <laughs> you know, whether money ball would work quite early on in that league. So yeah, they were a lot cheaper than other franchises, weren't they? Because all we were trying to do is basically get the ground ready, sort out some streaming, some really simple streaming. We'd only just started broadcasting our ODIs and major games for the first time ever. Scotland came over for the first ever One Day Internationals and T20 Internationals on Hong Kong or Chinese soil earlier that year. So we had a local team that didn't know cricket and were learning on the run. So it was a real budget affair but that also meant that our cost base was low and there wasn't a lot to lose and then all of a sudden these great teams came in the Kowloon Cantons being one of them owned by a group of nine cricket loving women from Hong Kong and and all of a sudden the energy really started growing and like I said Michael Clark literally called us saying look I'm looking about getting back into cricket potentially through T20 I'd love to to get some experience there and it just started going from there so the costs were really low to start with that's how we did it and then once we started selling packages and really the cost went up only as we knew the income was coming in. So that first year, if you go back and look at the videos, it is really bargain basement stuff with marquees up and whatnot. But I think that's where it really started growing a soul because that's where it came from. It wasn't just a pop-up tournament that turned up, didn't have any belonging whatsoever. And it also celebrated local players as well. It wasn't a matter of having seven or eight overseas players. That first year, I'm trying to remember, I think it was four and one of those had to be an associate, and we were the first tournament to do that as well, to actually force at least one place to be an associate. So that made a difference as well because we wanted to be a, an associate tournament as well, not just, like I said, a pop-up event with players that you see playing everywhere else in the world. Did everyone get paid, Cutler? You may have sent that question to me already, and as far <laughs> as I'm aware, yes, and there were reasons for that. That first year, the local players weren't paid because it was only a three-day event and it was part of basically a, the league, and it was up to the teams to do their own contracts with the overseas players and to bring them in. If you wanted to have overseas players, you had to pay for it, and that trend continued, although in the later years, there was a minimum contract value, depending where you're picked in the draft, for local players, and the teams were responsible for paying that. And as far as I'm, I'm aware, the last year I'd been gone, I left in 2017, but the third and last one was in 2018. As far as I know, everyone was paid, as well as overseas players. I've not heard one mention of that not happening. Well, you know me, I talk to everyone. I've never heard of anyone. <laughs> of all the leagues, it was one of the few, which is part of the reason, other than the fact that you got in touch, I think you're only the second person ever to try and book himself on Red Inca after Tamal Mills. So, you know, two incredible left-armed bowlers in different ways there. Well, two left-armed bowlers linked with the Hong Kong Blitz, but at least I turned up, you see. Remember, he got signed for the second Blitz, and then he got signed by the IPL a couple of weeks later, and all of a sudden his hammy wasn't so great in that event a couple of weeks before the IPL. So, um, look, it's, it's pretty good company. <laughs> so... One of the reasons I think that the tournament worked is, as you talked about, it had a soul, but it also started more as a cricket event rather than a marketing event, which many of these others do. So we'll sort of get through those. But how does 
the Hong Kong Blitz get sanctioned? How is it a ICC sanctioned event? Well, as an associate member, we can have sanctioned cricket, which is deemed approved cricket by the ICC, meaning other boards can issue not objection certificate NOCs, as we'll, we'll refer to during the <laughs> chat, meaning that overseas players can come. To go through that, and remembering this is the early days, no other associates were doing it. Full members say they're running an event, it's automatically sanctioned and NOCs can be issued. So when we went through this, it was a, actually quite an arduous process. You know, Charlie Burke, Director of Cricket at the time, going backwards and forwards with ICC, really ticking all the boxes. And that included where the event was being held. And we were lucky that we'd gone through the process of having Mission Road approved for ODI matches. So we had all the security plans all drawn up and whatnot already. If it wasn't already an approved ground, I think it would have been a lot a lot harder. We already had a really good relationship with the anti-corruption team, not for great reasons, but we were very close to them. And there was a lot of respect between the board and, and the ICC. And we're also really open with the communication around who the prospective owners were going to be of teams and they included in that first year and also in year two when we put another franchise out for sale and another one changed hands to make sure that we we're dealing with the, the right types of people so throughout all of this you know the ICC are a lot of things but for associates anyway when you're dealing with them they really are partners and they were great during that process for us to get signed off it wasn't a tick box affair I think probably because we were the first associate doing something like this mm. we'll put through our paces but no it was it was definitely a process. You talked about the owners, so I want to ask about that. So one of the big chats for my articles came out about this was around owners and due diligence. How hard is it to work out if someone actually has the money they say they are and are legit? Well, as we can see, current leagues, and you know all too well from um, probably holes in your bank account from the last few events as well, is that no matter how much money that people purport to say or say they say, sometimes that money doesn't turn up anyway. So... We really lent on the ICC, to be honest. We're lucky that one set of owners already own a PSL franchise. That's, of course, the Nakfis who own Hong Kong Island United and, and their sister smaller club, Islamabad United. And the ICC, we're very close to PCB going through that as well. So when we're talking to them about certain names and people, we lent on them. For they were the ones doing the checks for us. And especially when we went through the next round and the next year and had people bidding to actually run it through them. So how did we do that? We did the right checks from a, an integrity point of view. And really, we took people at their word who were signing contracts and paying that license fee up front as they would have to and sign a contract saying that that fee would be paid in years two, three, four, and however the contract called for. It is quite tough. I mean, I talked about the CPL a little bit in one of my articles and they basically had such a leadership flux because they allowed one owner in that they shouldn't have, but they took that connection because he owned, BJ Marley owned an IPL team. They then allowed another owner in of St. Lucia, Runup Pandya, and that was a hellscape for them from beginning to end. And you see this right across T20 cricket. I mean, you can talk about the global T20 and, and the Euroslam, which apparently are both still existing. But as it currently stands, it's very tough to work out if someone has money and it's not all on the boards as fault. But I do think that there are a lot of leagues around the world that do far less due diligence. And I think it sounds like hopefully that you did and that sometimes they're just desperate to get owners. Yeah. And there's a balance to these things. And there are things that perhaps in the future or should have been in place in the past of protecting funds. But you know, as you say, at the positive that we had in that we didn't have huge bills of hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions to pay. And if they did a runner everybody was in the lurch. You know, they, they already had to pay to get players from overseas locally. 
Hong Kong cricket handled all the other costs around telecasts and the grounds and all the teams had to do was basically get their players to turn up. I, I know there's different ways that it's cut in all the other leagues, but no, you're right, it's a tough one because, you know, cricket has definitely been kind of pulled into the web of a number of people over the years that, that say or do have a lot of money and then there are some horror, horror stories and, and they continue, don't they? So your league is basically being run by uh, Cricket Hong Kong. So because of that, Cricket Hong Kong is a 12-month-of-the-year organisation. If I remember, you were so burgeoning when I was there. What, when was I there? What year was that? 2017? 2016? February 2017, yeah. Yeah, it was so burgeoning that you couldn't fit everyone in the office. You had a quite a comfy office at the end, if I remember, but everyone else looked like... Actually, I think you, your office was full of cricket balls or something, wasn't it? Ridiculous as well. Yeah, down one side of the wall. No, I mm. did have a lot of space, and that's... you know We didn't pay for that office as being part of the sports house or Olympic house in Hong Kong, but no, you're right. And then most of the people weren't there anyway because they were out coaching kids in schools. And it put a lot of strain onto the organisation because we weren't set up necessarily to do that because in the past, the Sixers had been run by third-party organisations, mm. but this one we really took over those first two years. I know the third year they brought another events company in to help. And whilst we had companies help with, the, say, the hospitality and whatnot, it was something that we really brought the community into. But I actually think that was you know, talking about building a soul, that actually created a soul as well because local head coaches of, of clubs were on the door or helping show people around that it was their first time to the ground or they were assistant coaches or they were scorers. So I think that really built a community around it. So most T20 leagues, most of the ones that have the problems are absolutely nothing like what we've just discussed here. They don't start organically. They almost start with a few marketing people to begin with. Then you've got a social media team generally in India or Pakistan who seem to just churn out incredibly poor content. And then you have either a businessman or a company, and there's almost no one to talk to throughout the year because there is no one who works there. So unless you happen to have the WhatsApp of the owner and he gets back to you, there's almost no league themselves, which is completely different. And that's, I think, where a lot of the problems start. Agree. And I kind of think of it like the sort of uh, deep state Russian boxes of people kind of going, uh, tweeting away, trying to um, change public sentiment. Well, and there's this huge box of people somewhere in deepest, darkest who are just putting out Coley birthday tweets, you know, the same hour, <laughs> the same day, you know, and to look at some of these leagues that have run or, or haven't and to see the same old tired stuff being pumped out. Where is the identity around that exactly? If it's just popping up and these people that are there part-time, I think that's probably where the problems start because if there's no one with a love for it and no one really hanging on to it with any kind of love for it really you know it's we've seen what's happened you can probably speak better to that with your experience with St Lucia and having an owner that's not necessarily there or thereabouts and what that means but yeah I think it's all topsy-turvy and we look at the way that the likes of a Daniel Weston with a European Cricket League and I know this yeah. is a little bit off track of what we're talking about but moving away from a franchise to a club system that builds up to something of the size of a, a Champions League and what he's trying I don't think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think it's definitely a, it's a long burn if you're trying to build from the bottom up. But I think the more and more we look at it around the world, those who try and start from the top by spending as much money as possible on these huge stars, it doesn't work. You know, we haven't even mentioned the UAE T20X is another one that didn't get off the ground. I think I had a job in that one. I think I was booked for one of the You've teams. had a job in every league. No, I know. I never yeah. ended up. It was never a thing, was it? But I think, was it that and the T10 were at the same time and they were going to merge and I was with... Some team, the Balikistan Bullets, I, I don't know. I think one of them was the Dubai Golden Wings. and I was not with them. <laughs> the, but the owner of that is the one who's just been done the match fixing in the background. I think he's one of the most recent ones that had been announced. So it shows now, if you're trying to start a new pop-up T20 league with no identity, it's a struggle. 
the biggest problem is that there are some good owners. So if you look at the CPL, there's a couple of really good ownership groups that have been involved with the CPL. And if you look at the PSL, there's been some really good ownership groups go through there. And there are good ownership groups, even in some of these other smaller pop-up leagues that have good intentions. Quite often, they're doing it for the right reason. They want to almost start like a farm system, don't they, where they can develop their talent sort of all year round for the bigger tournaments, which again, for me, is really good. The problem is that there's so much desperation. And also, if you start a new league, the chances are, I mean, the IPL owners didn't make any money from their teams for quite a few years. And that was a monstrous league. If the Big Bash suddenly went public now, I don't think the teams would make money. That Same with the 100. For the first few years, if you're in that situation, what you are literally setting it up for is someone who is willing to go, I'm going to have a team for 10 years because I believe in the people who are setting up this league and eventually it will come good. Or you're setting it up for one of, I would say, what, three kinds of owners. You have hobby owners who just think, oh, it's great to have a team that I own in Hong Kong or South Africa or in the Caribbean. You then get people who are literally money laundering who are putting their money through that franchise for other purposes. And then the third one is people who are involved in match fixing. Those are the three groups. None of those are good groups that you really want to be involved in ownership. You're right. And we've seen entire events be controlled and started by those for match fixing only. And if you work back to your early examples of those looking for this, so that local farm, you look at brands like the Knight Riders, maybe more so if you're looking at something like Zalmi that have academies around the world mm-hmm. that are looking to kind of create a 24-7 presence and it's the same people running things and there's there's actually a, a pyramid to, to eventually potentially play in the PSL if you're in the Zalmi's case they've got Pakistanis around the world playing in their teams but there's a pathway there and they're also doing social good in, in the meantime but yeah and the, and the hobbyists who by definition are probably happy to lose money as long as they're involved but that also brings the enthusiastic hobbyist into it who may be trying to bring their influence who might be a little bit more amateur and enthusiastic rather than skilled saying well i'm paying for this so yeah to get that balance right and that could be within a tournament we could have all of those types of owners all in one and the more and more of these little pop-up tournaments that come up it's like, what's that game with the little things that pop up and you try and hit? Whack-a-mole? Like, oh, whack-a-mole. So, um, and you're trying to catch them. We had Steve Richardson from the ICC Anti-Corruption Unit on the Emerging Cricket Podcast last week. And they're trying to educate more and more people to try and protect the players because, you know, so many of these events are, are popping up and there are so many more players at risk because the more games that are being, I'm talking about even international cricket rather than franchise cricket, more and more cricket being streamed, more and more players at risk of being approached. So there's that element as well. Yeah, it's quite bad. So let's now go to the Fika story. So Fika come out and say that 33% of players or 32% or 34%, I can't remember. It's 30-odd. It's roughly a third, Cutler. Roughly a third of players have had problems with their payments in these leagues. Now, I am still owed money from two leagues that I will never get my money back from. I have been paid late in two other jobs, including the Big Bash, So when people think it's just these smaller random leagues, Big Bash didn't pay me any money until two-thirds of the way through the season. Didn't pay me a dollar. I never had a contract with the Big Bash, which tells you how amateur some of these, even the larger organizations are. It is a huge problem that we are not paying players. But the thing is, if the players don't all speak up, like in my article, trying to get players to speak up about this, and when they did, you sort of got these wishy-washy comments. And, you know, I think the best quotes we got were from Brad Hodge, and that's because um, Hodge doesn't give a shit anymore. He just mm. He's so sick and tired of not being paid, he's just going to say what he says. 
it's one of those things you kind of the imposter syndrome is you I remember when I, I started as CEO, you think, well, they're gonna find out they don't know what I'm doing. They did. Yeah, and, and uh, I was gonna lead into that, but uh, thanks for that. It's always good to have good friends. Um but you talk to the likes of Warren Dutram, CEO of Cricket mm. Island, and James Sutherland and Tom Harrison, that exactly the same elements. But I think this into their perspective, you know, that's a human reaction. I think it sounds like it's the same. The imposter syndrome would be that the blitz would never be the size of a BBL and we, geez, we're running like amateurs. And then to hear stories like that, it's like, it's worse, you know, to not pay someone. It's like owing a mate money. It's like, why do you get yourself in a situation when you're doing that? The, the lack of integrity, you know, if things are delayed for a real reason and you communicate, that's one thing. But if you're just fobbing someone off and then and not paying it, and that's why I think FICA is hopefully the straw that's broken the camel's back, but, you know, the ICC needs to clamp down on this if they're going to say about sanctioning leagues, that the money for players and staff needs to be protected. And some of the replies on Twitter to your article had people talking about, well, some of these events only really get the money and the teams only get the money with late sponsorship deals. It's like, yeah, but that tells you that the business is not run the right way and doesn't have a future if everything is waiting to the last moment. I'm willing to bet that one of the tournaments that hasn't paid you is a Euro T20 Slam, and they called that off three weeks before it was supposed to run because teams hadn't been sold and sponsorship hadn't been signed. Something like that should never get that close, but it shows that something's not right in the model, doesn't it? So I don't think we should be saying, no, we shouldn't be protecting money because the money isn't generally there to be paid. Well, that that tells me the model is wrong, and that tells me that the idea of franchise cricket in the world, it's not so much as broken, but it really needs a, a shift. Yeah, I would say it's broken, but I can understand why you trying to actually work for these boards wouldn't say that. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, no, no, it's broken because look at what's happening. The more and more that they pop up, everybody's trying to get into the subcontinental TV market. Mm. And how do they do that? They try and get retired Indian cricketers more so than, than Pakistani ones because the, the TV numbers, and it's not working. They've tried. How many events have tried? That approach is broken. Yeah, no, definitely. I could not agree more. I mean, the whole idea of we are going to get millions and millions of Indians watching our leagues has been just disproven again and again. And you can go back to the very start of this. I don't know if you remember, but the big bash, the reason the Melbourne Stars are the Melbourne Stars is because that was supposed to appeal to Pakistani fans who are all going to buy Melbourne Star shirts. They have been going after Indian and Pakistani TV markets in even the major leagues since the beginning. Just doesn't work. No. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of eyeballs throughout that region recently, but that was because there was no other cricket being played. And that's where the likes of Vanuatu and Zambia mm. have got that interest in the European cricket series in the meantime, as that's been running across Europe basically every day since lockdown started to um, to lift in some of those countries. But that's only because there's no other cricket going on. And I hope that continues and the, the interest in emerging cricket is there. But you're right. But it's also telling in 2017 when Yusuf Patan was signed and had an NOC from Baroda, Baroda, sorry, um, to come and play in the Blitz. We had an Indian TV deal to pay for our TV on the table, and as soon as his NOC was rescinded, so was that TV deal. So at that stage in 2017, the interest was still there for Indian players that were playing, and that's why I think the likes of what will Dhoni do, but also what have other retired players going to do still has that interest because people still think there's enough interest back in India for those retired players that can sustain a league. We haven't even got onto the USA yet and what they're trying to tap into into the migrant population and sort of second and third generation Americans from India in the the fact that, it, that their league is owned by Times of India and Willow and they're in the process of selling minor league franchises at the moment for a minor and major league that are supposed to start next year. So people are still continuing that vein of thought thinking, well, you know, if we get the Indian market, the money will come. Yeah. 
I've always found in what, 13 years of working in cricket that while there may be a lot of money in India, that money does not always come out of India. And so I understand why people think that that is not the case. But I would say that 80% of the time when someone in cricket wants to come up with a new project, they'll be like, yeah, we'll be able to sell this to India. And I go, I'm going to stop you there. You're not going to be able to sell it to India. You'd be better off and not even aiming at India, make sure it works as a thing. And if Indians eventually find it and like it, they will come to it on their own. But you're not going to sell it to India. That is not how these things work. No. And it's a interesting world that we find ourselves in and how live sport returns and how it attracts new audiences. And we may see a shift in viewing behaviors, but as soon as the IPL is back and as soon as cricket starts up again, the Indian team's playing, then trying to get that audience looking at your league is always going to be a struggle. Why do you think the BCCI stops their male players going to play in, in other leagues? Because they're trying to protect the value of the IPL. And why does nobody stop them? Because they're India. But that tells you that they know that there's value there and, and they're protecting it. And, mm. You know, you flip that around and you think, well, why doesn't the BCCI do this to the potential growth of the, the global game and actually allow their players to play in, in international leagues, maybe smaller ones, take a share themselves and grow the game that way. And by using that player base and that interest, but um, I guess that's a conversation for another day as to how the game could change. Yeah. Just to talk on the non-player payments again, as a CEO, former CEO of a, of a cricket board, it must horrify you to know how many players are traveling around the world to play in these leagues and getting paid in brown paper bags. Because you had a big corruption issue in Hong Kong cricket. You lost probably your best player through that. Again, sounds like he was groomed by someone that he knew personally in match fixing terms, hopefully. I don't want to go down an even darker conversation there. But the brown paper bags thing, if you're going to play in, let's say, Bangladesh, I know this has happened in Bangladesh, happened in the Masters leagues, it's happened in some other leagues as well. That is a huge problem because you are opening players up for actual corruption issues back in their own country. There are tax issues. And plus, no one should be giving anyone else a brown paper bag with $10,000 in it unless, I don't know, you're in a film noir? No, exactly. And that's not money in there anyway. And to even think about that sends shivers down my spine to think that there are kids, if we put in inverted commas, sneaking through customs, probably breaking the law by bringing in that amount of money already before they've even got mm. to the not declare and no look no it's like nobody actually wants to work in insurance but there are millions of people working around the world nobody around the world likes to uh to pay tax but i think this also goes to player welfare and the pastoral care of players that should start from junior up in that there's a responsibility on administrations and player managers to actually making sure their players are looked after and understand how these things should be done. So if they need tax advice about how to prepare for these things and that they should be ready to, but it also should be incumbent on events to be run properly and not making players smuggle cash like they're trying to make an illegal drop over the Mexican border. I, I just, it's crazy. Like if you, it doesn't make sense. If you wrote that down and said, I'm sure there are some player names that you could say, I know how to smuggle tens of thousands of dollars of cash back into his or her, well, probably his country, the way that women's cricketers are unfortunately paid at the moment. But And it would blow people's mind. It would, no, no, that mustn't have happened. And it does. I can promise you it is not small players. One of the players who told me this, yeah. everyone listening to this podcast would know who this player is, right? And another player who told me this, do you know what I mean? We are talking about major players yeah. having to do dodgy things. And not just because we work in cricket. I have other friends who are coming back on the same flights as players, and the players is like, can I just put this in your bag? Because if I get caught with this and the person's just like, no, yeah. no, you can't put 
I don't know where that $10,000 came from, that $20,000, that $5,000 came from. What are you talking about? And the reason they take it is because they're terrified that if they don't take that brown envelope, there may not be any money. And usually a discount as well, because they say, well, you, you don't have to pay tax on this. So Less for cash. <laughs> you're not a plumber working oh. on a Sunday. And I think, you know, we've already talked about you take that lens and you put it over countries and taking ownership structures and money from people who are perhaps unscrupulous. It's like, oh, crap, I better take this ownership or take this license offer because there may not be another one. You know, there may not be other people that want to invest in my event. And that might be because they've priced themselves out. And the only people that are paying are those that are coming from a, a slightly shady background. So it's funny how that layer goes the whole way down, doesn't it? Where the boards are probably taking it from people they shouldn't and the players are then having to pay for it because if you sign up for an event, it was interesting on, on Twitter with Nick Cummins, who's the big bash GM of the stars and former CEO of the uh, uh, Cricket Tasmania, et cetera, saying that, the player managers is coming on them to actually be doing due diligence of the event and perhaps players won't be going to these events for so much more money and they'll come to the likes of a BBL for less. It's like, well, I don't think it's really on a player manager to be doing due diligence of a full member run event or an ICC sanctioned event. You know, if you sign a contract, really, and I've never had this issue, I've been employed my entire working life on a permanent working contract and I've got paid. I can't imagine that if I went somewhere, signed a contract and worked, you know, you're playing cricket, you're coaching, you're a commentator. And that's the other one as well. It's not just players, is it? There's some famous oh. commentators in there that I know that still haven't been paid by some of the biggest leagues and the biggest league in the, in the world. It's not just commentators. It goes all the way down to t-shirt sellers. To police, I know one owner who didn't pay the police to provide security. Like we're talking about people being not paid right across the board and the players are the most public ones. Because I wrote this about the coaches. No one cared <laughs> when I wrote this article about the coaches. But you write about the players and people get, but it goes all the way down. And you're right. It is horrendous. And you talked briefly there about the contracts. So let's go on to the contracts. I can tell you exactly how bad the contracts are, Cutler, because I've written them. And I've seen your writing. Huh? And I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, just <laughs> random references to Benny Howells all the way through these uh, CPL contracts. But if I'm writing a contract and I've got no one that I can go to and get a proper contract, and the contracts that are given to you by governing bodies are like, I showed my wife's a lawyer in London and I've shown her the contracts and she's like, that can't be for real. That can't be a real contract. When I talked to the sports lawyer in the UK, to Yasin Patel, who's the uh, barrister, and he represents quite a lot of the cricketers uh, when they have to sue and you know get involved with these different cricket boards. He's just like, if you break down the contract on a very basic level, every contract is written the same for every coach and for every player, but not every coach and every player comes into the job to do the same thing. So for instance, if you're Corin Pollard or Chris Gale or David Warner, you might have image rights. You might also get paid a promotional fee, which they quite often get, which is why the salary cap thing is so hilarious in most of these leagues, because there are so many ways around it. But that's a whole different conversation for another day. So much of these leagues are nonsensical. But if you're a major player, you'll have that, but you'll still get the standard contract, right? If you're a local player who's playing quite early on in his career, you'll get the same contract as an overseas player who's just coming in for two weeks. And quite often these contracts are not even rewritten to suggest that you're only playing that particular amount of time and you're coming in for those sorts of things. For the coaches, the same thing. So I was an analyst, but my contract was a coaching contract. It literally had the word coach written at in least, it. At least it had that. Yeah. And so I had to rewrite it. And these are so amateur. And then if you've got owners who are not willing to pay or can't pay 
which also happens. I mean, we talk about terrible owners in the case of they uh, don't want to pay because their team's lost and they get angry or they don't have any money in the first. But there's some guys who just can't afford it because the money hasn't come in from the league, which, as you said, shows that the system is broken. So it means that the contracts that are poorly written in the first place are completely useless. So basically you tore my entire argument down there about signing contract. But yeah, and that just is just evidence of the whole thing we're talking about, isn't it? Wherever you look, everything's done probably from a version of a contract that was done by someone's mate in another event in another country in, a, in another decade. Yeah. Which again, this is money from events and not necessarily being run by full members or associate themselves. You think, well, where's the money going to? If it's not going on legal and compliance to make sure you got all your ducks in the row, shareholdings, you know, imagine what the ownership contracts are like then between the, the owners and the, and the league. And then when you've got a situation like the CPL where they're trying to encourage owners to leave or, or otherwise, you know, what legal standing do they have then if you, your contract's non-compliant or at least can actually not function in a real world. So yeah. face palm, I hope you've kept that contract for, um, have you framed it, that coach contract? Yeah, I probably rewrote it when I was general manager for someone else. So yeah, I probably did. The obvious way to make sure that the payments is fixed is escrow, which I wrote about in the uh, Crick Info article. And the problem with that is that it would require cricket to be run correctly. And cricket is not run correctly. There is no one in charge, as we've talked about quite a lot. The economics of these T20 leagues don't exist, but also the administration above them, as in the ICC, doesn't exist. So when I talked to various people across the ICC, none of them were saying, oh, you know, it's, it's run well. They were all like, yeah, we know. We'd love to fix it. But when they tried to fix it, the boards didn't want to be run by the ICC, which is, a, as you would know, there's a huge disconnect with the ICC. The ICC is made up of cricket boards, but it doesn't actually want the ICC, the administrative side, to ever tell them what to do with anything. And that's where it comes down to. So it means that escrow, most people I talk to in cricket, and I did talk to a couple of people who run different leagues, everyone was like, yeah, it's obviously the way to, to at least make sure that the players, the coaches, and support staff get paid. But if no one's going to enforce it, it's not going to come in, is it? No, right, well, the PCB did do it for the first, was it four seasons? They did guarantee, didn't they? Theirs was slightly different. Yeah, which is also good. As good as, as, yeah. as good as. But that also means it isn't money in the bank and you've got to go to actually turn that into cash is, is quite a process. And it can also mean that the teams can potentially still pay late, but then pay and just kind of play that tension. But well, you hit the nail on the head with the ICC and there's also the boards themselves. You know, what is the ICC? That's a podcast in itself. But if the teams, the members that are on the ICC board aren't going to vote for something that puts regulations in place globally, then it's on the members as much as it is on the ICC because the ICC is only an, an instrument of those 17 people on the ICC board and their decisions. So escrow makes sense. Well, you want to run a league or you want to have a team in the league, great, deposit this much money in that account and then pass go. Yeah, exactly. So for me, there are three ICCs. I want to see if you agree with it because you've been to meetings. You've probably been ignored by Giles Clark. You don't have to say that on the record. It's okay. There's the governing body, which is the idea that they run cricket, which does not exist. But a lot of people look at it that way. There's the administrative body, which I think it might have been Giles Clark who once said, you know, they provide the umpires. And there is a committee of people who don't really care what happens to cricket outside their individual nations who occasionally meet in Dubai. Yeah, there's probably a few ways of cutting that. And I'll start with the most positive is the development team, the team of a dozen or so individuals spread across the world who work with the 94 associates and can't speak highly enough that, of that team. And they'd be part of the administrative body. Okay, if you want to put this yeah. part of the administrative body, because there's also the bunch of people that come together to run these global events. Yep, part of the administrative body. Okay, well, and then your committee that you're talking about are the four members and the three 
associates and independent women's director and a, and a chair that sits on, on, on that committee. I think it's made up of people who come conflicted whether they like it or not. Mm. And to say that they don't care about country with, outside their country, I'd say they're put in a position where they're in a catch-22. It's turkeys and Christmas. And that's evident enough for me is that the administration of, of world cricket needs to change. It's tough to use a, a Cricket Australia as an example with the tension now around state representation and, and whatnot, but to have a more independently driven global body driving a global game and you'd end up with global investment in the development of the sport like a FIFA has with a FIFA forward program versus what's happening with funding in global events in cricket, which I think speak for themselves. So, look, I think you're right. The notion of a governing body is a loose one. Yeah, it's a global body, but it's, it's definitely a, a toothless tiger. And that's the problem with this system. So you then have cricket was not set up to have capitalism involved in it. It just wasn't. And I don't mean business owners coming in. I mean, literally owning franchises, having outside franchises. I always put it this way. It's a bunch of old men meeting at a boardroom in the 1700s. The only difference is now they fly to Dubai. Not much has actually changed in the governance of cricket, except for a few exceptions. As you say, Cricket Australia, I think, New Zealand Cricket, Cricket Island. There's some interesting stuff that's going on. Obviously, you guys tried it in Hong Kong. Oh, no, you didn't even try it in Hong Kong. That's oh, It was happening, and then it happened uh, after I left. That's it was right. one of the top-line strategies, which in the end, unfortunately, they're dealing with sort of some issues with everything else going on there. But no, it, it did, and we used those countries' boards as, as the example, Ireland being the flag-bearer there. Yeah, and so you have this system where cricket wasn't even in where modern sport was. I remember um, some sort of sports conference that had a lot of cricket people at it. And I can't remember if it was in London or America, but Gideon Haig was there. And I think one of their CEO, perhaps, of, of New Zealand cricket was there. And Adam Silver had given a speech. I think it was Adam Silver, the um, NBA CEO. And he said, this is what you can do and you can do all this. And whoever the CEO of cricket New Zealand got up and went, yeah, that's what cricket should do. And Gideon Haig went, you realise... They run a league. Mm. No one's in charge of this. And I always think about that because nothing has changed because we don't have any form of proper governance at the top level of cricket. And we quite often don't at a lot of the board levels as well. You then get these points when all this money has come in, this capitalism, and someone in Qatar wants to have a league, and you've got a league in Canada, and then you've got, well, South Africa's like, well, we have to get on board now, so we have to have a league. Suddenly you have very archaic organizational structures having to deal with the modern world. Yeah, and I think you go back to World Series cricket to see how that was dealt with, and I'm not sure the sort of governance structure has changed really, has it? You know, the countries still own the players, and we've you know seen enough examples there of conflict between players and their boards when they can make more money in a couple of weeks than they may in months for a country. And you're right, and whether you're using basketball as an example with the NBA as a standout league, but there are other regional leagues within Europe that players can make a living and they run through an entire season. But then FIBA uh, has windows for the World Cup qualifications that all the teams take part of and then all move towards a, a larger growing World Cup and the leagues know that's happening and, and they buy into it. So, And FIBA's a good example because FIBA is in no way the most powerful organisation in basketball. Obviously, the, the Chinese leagues, some of the European leagues and the NBA absolutely dwarf it. But people have still said... This is a good time for us all to have a break here and we will play these tournaments because it is for the greater good. And basketball is, other than football, probably now the most global sport. I mean, it really is played everywhere. And I think Tim Wigmore argued that it, it's the second most popular one in the world. It's, it's ahead of cricket for everyone else who says that cricket's number two, that he argued rather well that basketball is there. But what underlies these international leagues that are, are well supported by these countries are 
the leagues and the countries that run over a decent length of time don't run over the top of other ones. Players aren't running backwards and forwards and they're established and respected and they pay their bills. Can I ask you a question? Is cricket too global to ever actually fix this problem? Because when you talk about those other, they started with the idea of world championships and everything. We came at this from a completely different Mm. perspective. We already had cricket and now we're trying to fit cricket into what the modern world is. Is it too global? I just think there are so many other leagues trying to copy what has already been done to a good enough level to keep going and are always fighting for the the minor placings rather than trying to actually establish their own identity in their league. So are we too global? No. But is everybody trying to do the same thing and trying to get different results? Yes. But if we're trying to get out of this shadow, I think we'd have to see fundamental change in the majority of global leagues around the world or at least smaller leagues are looking to merge to look regional or transcontinental to actually break out of this rut because the way that it's going, I'd say the globalisation is more that everyone's just trying to cookie-cutter what they're seeing elsewhere that's, that's successful. So what I mean by that is because it is a summer sport and it's not like basketball or football, you have a situation where you can only play in most countries for six to nine months of the year. How do we ever get a situation where we can accommodate any kind of international cricket at a decent level and all these T20 leagues at the same time? I just don't see it. You've got to start reducing the amount of cricket being played to increase the value of the games that have been playing internationally. I think that's the only answer to that question if you're running that along a logical line because it doesn't mean that playing more and more cricket brings the game more and more value. You know, you You're saying that the pie is getting bigger with the more and more cricket you play. I don't think that's what it is. It's just cricket overload and people look away. And I think already, and I'm not blaming other formats at doing that because I think the formats are following society and interest levels and trying to get people to to look away from a, a game screen or their phones where decades before you weren't fighting that, you were fighting other sports, where now you're fighting so many other interests that the game needs to be nimble enough to keep up with that interest and maintain its its current audience. It's going to be like a very uh, pricey of how to save cricket, but in the same sense to not eat away at itself where you only have the big boys left and there's no one else because they've been left in the wake and cricket's just a bit of a, a distant memory in these countries that, that were growing because of the weight of these global leagues and, and some of the, the bigger nations and meant that they couldn't compete. And in the fight of everyone trying to be as good as possible, it just meant that you only have a couple of, of people left in the ring as opposed to having a, a healthy global game where everyone's where the, the global tide has rised. But I think that's the problem at the moment. The tide isn't, isn't going up. It's only going up in certain places. Tim Cutler, thank you for coming on and not at any stage referencing The Simpsons. It's always a pleasure to talk. Always enjoy your company. And if you want me, I'll come back whenever you want me. You can't book yourself again, Cutler. Well, you said we've got another chat to have about the uh, the global structures and, and governance because that's everybody wants to talk about governance in cricket. There was this movie five years ago that basically made cricket governance sexy, and I think there should be more spoken about it, perhaps even a follow-up movie. Nah. <laughs> the pregnant pause was, uh, was appreciated. No, always a pleasure. You know I love you and, and your writing. It's good to come on. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at Emerging Cricket on Twitter. Tim Cutler is also there as his own man making bad Simpsons jokes. Please review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Just tell people about it as much as humanly possible. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. They help make it sound better and allow us to do an episode every week. 
So we thank every single one there. You can find the link to Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston touches you orally. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.